Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes, and that is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. Today's discussion will be on the historic fault lines in Europe, as well as using social media in wartime. Our first speaker will be Robert Kaplan, who is the author of the bestseller, The Balkan Ghosts. And he has a new book called Adriatic, A Concert of Civilizations at the End of the Modern Age. Robert will discuss why Italy, the former Yugoslavia, Albania, Greece, and Turkey are at the fault lines of Europe and why there are wars on Europe's periphery. Our second speaker is Emerson Brooking, who will discuss his book, Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. We'll learn from Emerson how Ukraine and Russia are using social media to persuade their allies to support their war efforts. Buckle up. If you missed it, check out last week's program on Jewish comedy and a history of the American right. Last week's first speaker was Jeremy Dauber, who is a professor at Columbia and the author of Jewish Comedy, A Serious History. You'll find out why there are so many Jewish comics and why they're so damn funny. Last week's second speaker was Matt Continetti from AEI, who has a book entitled The Right, A Hundred-Year History for American Conservatism. Matt explains how the conservative movement is not monolithic and why they disagree over foreign policy, trade, and immigration. Each month since the beginning of COVID, I've discussed the latest employment report because it is the most important global economic statistic. This month's establishment report showed a 468,000 job increase, which is very solid. Unemployment is low. Among college graduates, it is now 2.0% and just 3.1% for those with some college. These numbers can't go much lower. We're approaching full employment. The number of individuals who didn't look for work because they were scared of COVID fell in half this month, and it's coming to an end. Yet the demand for workers is near record levels, which explains why the job market is hot and why half of all job switches are getting raises in excess of 10%. This inflation in the economy is not transitory. And as a result, the Federal Reserve raised rates this week by 50 basis points to slow the economy down. But the Fed actions have 18-month lags, and the Fed funds rate is still just 1%, so watch out. I use interns to help me prepare this podcast, and I'm looking to hire a new batch of interns for the summer. Historically, the interns have been seniors in high school, college students, or recent college grads. Interns will reassign books, decide if they're show-worthy, and then we'll review last week's show to make them better. Interns are exposed to all aspects of podcasting. If you're interested, please let me know. You can find transcripts for this program and all of our previous episodes on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com, and you can listen on Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. All right, let's please begin with our first speaker, Robert Kaplan. I'm Robert D. Kaplan. I'll be talking about my book, Adriatic, A Concert of Civilizations at the End of the Modern Age. The Adriatic is important for these reasons. One is the Adriatic is a fault zone between East and West to the same degree. On the Italian side on the West, you have Roman Catholicism. The Balkan side on the East, you have Eastern Orthodox Christianity and in Albania, Islam. You have the Venetian Empire on the West. You have the Ottoman Turkish Empire on the East. It's very significant, especially in light of the Ukraine crisis. What is the Ukraine crisis really about? Europe has always been determined by wars, cataclysms, events on its periphery. Ukraine is a periphery of Europe. 
Peter the Great and the Ottoman Turks came in from the East and changed Europe. Russia has always been a challenge for Europe. The Adriatic is another periphery of Europe. In the 21st century, we're going to see more interaction between Europe and the Near East, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa. All this comes into play in my book about the Adriatic. Robert, your previous blockbuster book entitled The Balkan Ghosts was published over 30 years ago about the breakup of Yugoslavia. How much has the former Yugoslavia changed over the past 30 years? Dramatically on one hand and not at all on the other. Take Croatia. Croatia is now a vacation destination. About 15 million tourists come to Croatia's Dalmatian coast on the Adriatic Sea every summer. This is almost four times the population of Croatia itself. And how has it changed it? Rather than a hinterland Balkan country, it's made it into a Mediterranean country. Since the war ended, there have been a series of massive superhighways built linking the interior of Croatia with points along the Adriatic coast. Instead of suffering six hours or so in a train, you can go from the deepest inland Balkan part of Croatia and be on the Mediterranean in 90 minutes. This has changed the whole scope of the country. It's changed its economy because of the explosion of tourism on the coast. And yet, as I said, it hasn't changed at all. Why is that? You get to Zagreb, the capital of Croatia, and it's all ethnic politics. All these arguments about the number of Jews killed or the number of Serbs killed during World War II, the same arguments I heard 30 years ago when I researched Balkan ghosts the former Yugoslavia. Ethnic conflicts continued without the shooting. There's no violence. Now it's played out over the internet between people screaming at each other over Twitter and Facebook, etc. I don't think there will be any shooting because the countries are still exhausted. Remember, shooting happened because the Yugoslav National Army collapsed and all the weaponry got divided up among the various militias in the 1990s. So I don't think the Balkans are going to come back into the headlines in a bad way again. Croatia and Slovenia have done the best of the former Yugoslavia. Even their development should be even higher than it is. If you didn't have this nasty ethnic politics, they could be on the scale of Austria. Croatia and Slovenia have not changed at all, but it's changed dramatically. My grandfather, George Karp, was born in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire in the small city of Sibiu. When he grew up there before the First World War, the city was pretty much evenly split among Germans, Jews, Slavs, and Hungarians. Today, it is purely Romanian. This area in the Adriatic and Eastern Europe has had massive population transfers. Do you think we will see more or less population diversity in the Balkans? I think they've become less pure because of the population exchanges. The Ukraine war has exacerbated that. This is a century of migration, of refugee movements. In this century, people will be on the move, not just because of wars, 
but because of the revolutions of rising expectations. People will want to move to a place where it's better. This is a much more global Balkans than the one I saw when I researched Balkan ghosts 30 years ago. Globalization is everywhere in Croatia because of tourism. It's also seeping into Montenegro, into Albania. Italy is less Italian. Globalization has diluted these fierce ethnic nationalisms. Everyone's bubbling about populism. Even though Marine Le Pen lost the election, she got a better result than ever before. And Viktor Orban has been reelected in Hungary. And look what Putin is doing in Ukraine. In the long march of history, populism will be an epiphenomenon. You know, it's a phase passing through because this is not the 1930s. Globalization has diluted ethnic nationalisms and is continuing to do so on a daily basis, so gradual you don't even notice it. Even places like Hungary and France will pass out of this. When I worked at Salomon Brothers in their emerging markets department, I partnered with Mark Franklin, who taught me the shoe leather approach to market research. We would literally walk the emerging markets and meet with senior politicians, central bankers, local billionaires, and newspaper editors. You use a shoe leather style to journalism. Describe your process. The moment I cross into the former Yugoslavia, politics takes over, and you have to talk to people in order to find out what's going on. The reality on the ground is different than you read in the newspapers. And it's not different in the sense that the journalists get it wrong. It's that they're missing nuances. They're missing subtleties. For instance, all the talk about Saudi Arabia is about the killing of the Washington Post journalist and that it's an autocracy. And you get to Saudi Arabia and everybody is happy over the liberation of women. You see women sitting alone in cafes, working on their Apple computer, greeting a man, kissing him on the cheek. The society has changed dramatically over the last five years or so, and yet because it didn't happen all in one day, it's not a news story. It doesn't fit within the parameters of news. I didn't expect the level of globalization in Croatia, nor did I expect the continuing arguments about ethnic politics, because you don't read about it, because it's nonviolent, it doesn't make a news story, so it doesn't travel outside local websites. I was surprised by the dramatic change in living standards and construction standards going from Croatia to Montenegro, where it's much less developed. I didn't expect the high level of urban development in Albania, where parts of Tirana have really become like a global city, despite the crime, the corruption, and everything. You don't read about this in the newspapers. So to really understand a country, you have to go to the place and talk to people because journalists miss nuances because that's not what they do. In your new book, Adriatic, you mentioned that travel offers the individual a chance for self-discovery. Why does leaving your local community encourage personal growth? All travel is a work of self-discovery because you're alone or you should be alone. That's real travel, as I point out in the book. You're alone encountering different landscapes, different art, 
different people. You're out of your daily groove. You're not among friends or relatives or even colleagues. So you discover aspects of yourself that you didn't realize you had. And that's something I've dealt with my whole career as a travel writer. In your other books, you are a detached observer. But in your new book, Adriatic, you become a character in the plot. Why did you decide to make this book so personal? Half of the book deals with the former Yugoslavia, and I became famous or infamous because of Balkan ghosts, and therefore I couldn't just write about the former Yugoslavia and not talk about Balkan ghosts and how I wrote it and my regrets about it. I couldn't avoid it because my book was an issue in the Balkans, so I had no choice but to put myself as a protagonist. In your recent book, you beat yourself up over your naivete in the Balkan ghosts. You've read other historical travel writing, but skipped academic research in your field. Why do you think that getting the academic perspective is necessary to understand what is happening now on the ground? Before I went to the Balkans 30 years ago, I read a lot of its history, but I was ignorant of the academic history and academic research about the place. Now, one can criticize that we have too much credentialism, too much specialties, and we're missing generalists like myself. But the intellectual honesty of it is that you can't just go to a place and be oblivious to these specialists, the best specialists. They're worth reading. And so that's what I've done with this book. I've incorporated the best of the best into my discussions of the former Yugoslavia and Albania. In your work, you like to highlight the importance of geography. National borders matter. Mountains and water separate communities. Why is geography important in the Adriatic? When we think of geography, nothing seems more logical than Italy. It's a long boot extending from Europe, and everyone speaks Italian. It geographically makes sense. But as I point out, that was not always the case. Northern Italy, Southern Italy had vast differences, and they were almost different countries. Turin in the north to a village in Sicily in the south is to go from the most developed part of the world to the least. What changed geography in Italy was modern transportation. Italy only became geographically obvious in the 19th and 20th centuries. Before then, it was like a geographical expression, but not a really united place. As an example of the importance of water to geography, can you compare Albania with its close neighbor, Corfu? I went to a town in Albania that I knew from 30 years ago, Saranda, which was then a beautiful little sleepy village. And now it's this overgrown morass of the worst architecture you ever saw. By bad architecture, I don't just mean an urban design that you disagree with. I mean buildings that look like the interior of lavatories, no zoning, no aesthetics. There's almost a violence, a chaotic violence in it. And Albania, despite all the progress it's made, is still way, way behind. High levels of corruption, weak institutions, organized crime, etc. Yet, you take a hydrofoil from Saranda, and it was a calm day, 
and it glided over where the Adriatic meets the Ionian Sea. And literally 30 minutes later, you're entering the breakwater of Corfu to the Greek customs station where you go through passport control. And the moment you enter Corfu, it's like the Wizard of Oz. It goes technicolor from black and white. Everything changes. Aesthetics take over. Every trellis has potted flowers. Every building is old but well kept up. It's like a perfect paradise without being touristy. 30 minutes of sea travel takes you from one realm to another. Comparison is the beginning of all serious scholarship. What is Albania like? I'll say it's a lot worse off than Croatia. What is Greece like? Well, it's a lot less institutionally developed and organized than France or Austria or Germany. But compared to Albania, it's paradise, literally. And this is only 30 minutes on a boat. You could literally swim it if you're a good swimmer. Why do so many Balkan states dream of joining the EU and NATO like Ukraine? The Balkans are quite similar to Ukraine in this regard. They're heavily Eastern Orthodox, quasi-European in various ways, underdeveloped on the periphery of Europe with real historical legal issues vis-a-vis their neighbors. Some of the Balkan countries are part of NATO, others are not. Only Croatia and Slovenia are part of the EU. The others want to join. This Ukrainian crisis could unfold, uniting the EU and uniting NATO and giving it a new purpose. And with that new purpose, both the EU and NATO may in the future have the energy to eventually incorporate the Balkans. That's the good news. The other way of looking at it is six months from now, Europe may be exhausted from dealing with Ukraine, less of an appetite to absorb these Balkan countries through which I traveled. Will the Ukraine war lead to a radical restructuring of the periphery of Europe? Vladimir Lenin said that decades could go along and nothing happens. And then days and weeks go along and everything happens. Decades transpire in a matter of three or four weeks. And the next seven weeks in Ukraine could determine the next 15 years in Russia. You wrote two books on the American military and its role in nation building. The U.S. operates differently from the Russians, who seem to be blowing up a nation. The American military is a great institution, provided it gets good direction. The American military had no solution to the problems of complex Muslim societies in Iraq and Afghanistan. But if you target the American military well, it knows how to fight. It's highly uncorrupt and honest. Morale is very good. The quality of the individual troop is much higher than in Russia. And this devolves from a free and democratic versus an autocratic society. Remember, militaries are just metaphorical extensions of the strengths and weaknesses of the society at large. 50 years ago, you enlisted in the Israeli military. How did that experience impact your worldview? The Israeli military is the product of a very small, tight-knit 
uni-ethnic society that has real enemies on its borders. It's not just paranoia, it's real enemies. And because it's a tight society with near universal constriction, morale and quality is very high. With these Russian troops, morale is terrible. The U.S. military has a very highly developed non-commissioned officer corps. That is corporals, sergeants, sergeants first class, master sergeants, etc. They're the real heart and soul of the U.S. military. They're what makes the American military function so well. The Russians have almost no non-commissioned officer corps, and that's why so many have been killed. They're near the front lines because they have no buffer of non-commissioned officers to essentially direct the troops. Robert, I end each episode on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? While democracy may not succeed everywhere in the world, the general spirit of more liberal societies will gain ground because even autocracies around the world are liberalizing their populations. Thank you, Robert. Let's go to our second speaker, Emerson Brooking. Emerson runs the Digital Forensic Research Lab, and he's written a book, Like War, on the Weaponization of Social Media. Emerson, please go ahead. I study the intersection of internet technology and war. The first internet war was a small socialist uprising in the state of Chiapas, Mexico in 1995. The most recent internet war is between Russia and Ukraine. I see three ways that the internet has changed war and conflict. The first is a revolution in open source intelligence, or OSINT. Widespread internet penetration and near universal smartphone use lets video and photographic evidence spread through the internet after the fact. As one CIA officer told me, secrets now come with a half-life. In the May 2011 mission to kill Osama bin Laden, SEAL Team 6 stormed bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. They'd flown two Black Hawk helicopters low to the ground, avoiding radar detection in the dead of night. It was a secret military operation. They killed Osama bin Laden and exfiltrated, and no one was the wiser. But this operation was discovered by a Pakistani IT consultant who was up late at night crashing on a project. He heard the whole thing, and he created his own digital trail of events. President Obama announced that bin Laden had been killed, and it took just moments for reporters to find this evidence, which had not been disclosed in the initial U.S. announcement of the operation, and ask questions and raise concerns this OSINT revolution also enables crowdsourcing, uh, real-time collaboration between multiple analysts using off-the-shelf tools like Google Maps, or working with other people who are looking at the social media trails of fighters in war zones. Ukraine, the OSINT community, watching TikTok videos of Belarusian teenagers had a pretty accurate understanding of Russian forces and military equipment that was in place prior to the invasion. The second way that the internet's really changed war and conflict is in the spread of propaganda. The internet optimizes content that produces anger and outrage. This human 
compunction to consume this, this content that makes you angry, to share it in turn. This has been harnessed by actors to gain political and even battlefield advantages. The Islamic State terrorist organization in 2014 used viral propaganda and outrage-inducing uh, barbaric, violent content to grow from a small faction in the Syrian civil war to a military organization that was capable of invading northern Iraq and required an international response to defeat. This content that spreads anger and outrage doesn't have to be true. And in fact, the messenger of this content does not have to accurately represent themselves. So this opens the door to clandestine information manipulation, disinformation. My team at the Digital Forensic Research Lab see disinformation campaigns proliferating in this war between Russia and Ukraine. The Russian invasion of Ukraine was premised on an extended disinformation campaign that had denied historical Ukrainian claims to sovereignty, associated all Ukrainians with neo-Nazis. And the final thing I want to focus on is the way the internet has changed from the power of social media companies. They wield the power of content moderation. As we think about war migrating online, we also need to think a bit about the battle space. Now, this isn't a physical battle space. This isn't land, sea, or air. This is a digital battle space. And that means that it plays by a different set of rules. The way the platforms are built, the way that algorithms are built, these decisions are concentrated in the hands of a, a small number of individuals, the founders of Facebook, of Twitter, Google, and YouTube, the Chinese owners of TikTok, who were disconnected from politics at large. And historically, these social media companies have been reluctant to accept their new responsibility. A lot of the engineers who run these systems set out to create interesting consumer products. They didn't set out to be judges and arbiters of armed conflict or political campaigns. So they've sometimes denied the power that their products have. And we've seen the power that these companies have wielded over the war between Russia and Ukraine. Technology companies repeatedly stumble as they've tried to write policy which permits Ukrainians to call for violence against Russian invaders while still prohibiting violent content and extremism in other cases. The Russian government seeing the power that these companies wield, have banned Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Russia talks increasingly about disconnecting itself from the global internet entirely. I study revolution in communications, in politics, and in war fighting. And I believe it's a fundamental challenge for our age. In your opening remarks, you mentioned the 1995 Mexican Chiapas uprising that employed social media. What happened? In 1995, a uh, revolution among poor farmers in the Mexican state of Chiapas rebelled against the Mexican government. They declared an independent state. And most governments typically send in the armed forces, reestablish control, and that's the end of it. But this time, the Zapatistas 
launched an aggressive media war against the Mexican government. They could reach out to Western journalists and web forums populated by global leftist and Marxist sympathizers. As soon as they declare independence, international reporters flew to Mexico to cover it. The Mexican military couldn't release this brutal campaign of suppression without seriously damaging Mexico's international reputation. The Mexican foreign minister at the time said, with regret, that Mexico had been a victim of, quote, a war of the internet. How important was social media for the Arab Spring? Do you remember that Google employee who worked in Egypt who said, take to the streets, and then millions did? The 2010 Arab Spring, that's a moment where most people became aware of the political power of the internet as a democratizing tool for good. The Arab Spring did lead to the overthrow of Mubarak and other dictators. But after Mubarak came Morsi and then Sisi, an Egyptian colonel and a new strongman. Sisi's regime, which was deeply anti-democratic, has become more oppressive than Mubarak's regime ever was. So social media mobilization did enable a democratic movement that overthrew a dictator, but it didn't last. And the same internet forces used for a good thing were soon used to strengthen authoritarian tendency. Tell me about social media's use of false propaganda that can set off riots and other bad behavior. Your words remind me of a quote from a Sri Lankan government official describing a series of lynchings of Muslims by the Buddhist majority. These lynchings had been propagated because of false rumors on WhatsApp. He said, the seeds are our own. The seeds arise from our society, but Facebook is the wind. Social media intensifies and accelerates the way that information can spread. Long broiling tensions in a society can come to the fore very quickly. But reactionary forces are actually much better at organizing on social media in the long run. In India, you might see organized troll armies engaging in harassment against the Muslim minority. In Brazil, troll armies working on behalf of Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro to attack, demean, and intimidate the minority. Can you explain how ISIS radicalized Muslims to join them in that fight? ISIS launched the most cost-effective war in history. When ISIS was at the peak of its power in 2014, it executed kidnapped American journalist James Foley. Video of that execution went immediately viral. In 2014, more Americans reported being scared of an imminent terrorist attack than had been in October 2001, in the aftermath of 9-11. By killing two individuals neither on American soil, ISIS had managed to completely capture American attention. The Islamic State was destroyed in the end. But the goals of this terrorist organization were to force a confrontation with the United States and to force American re-engagement. The Islamic State ultimately did not achieve its goals of long-lasting caliphate. The Islamic State now has lost most of its territory and 
although it still has plenty of adherents, there are plenty of other people who were too scared to openly identify with the group. But propaganda did enable them to achieve their strategic objectives. How would you contrast the use of social media by non-state versus state actors? Non-state actors are more willing to try new technologies and tactics because they're looking for any advantage they can get. That's why the first internet war I described was that of a small socialist uprising in Mexico against the Mexican government. In subsequent years, social media was largely a tool of left-leaning activist causes through the late 90s and early 2000s. And then social media was used by terrorist organizations, by al-Qaeda after the invasion of Iraq, then by ISIS and other groups. Different governments adopted the technology at different rates. For a weak state like Russia, which was looking for new ways to compete with the United States, social media and a new generation of information operations was an attractive area of investment. Iran and China looked for new ways to contest American hegemony. Elliot Higgins spoke on what happens next about his organization, Bellingcat, that uses crowdsourcing to debunk disinformation by governments. Bellingcat used video and photos by Russian soldiers to prove that Russia was responsible for shooting down a Malaysian jetliner. Afterwards, Russia tried to prevent Russian soldiers from bringing their smartphones to battle. Loose lips sink ships. Loose tweets sink fleets. The Russians learned it the hard way. The Russian military operational security was non-existent in the early 2010s when they were operating first in eastern Ukraine and then in Syria. Open source intelligence groups like Bellingcat were able to identify individual Russian soldiers as they conducted their malign activities. The spread of social media is a wake-up call for militaries trying to reassess their operational security. But it's also not as easy as just banning smartphones because smartphones are an intrinsic part of the lives of active duty service members just as they are everyone else. You can tell a a 19-year-old, not to use a smartphone, but then they can't communicate with their family. Their morale absolutely hits the toilet. You mentioned the raid on bin Laden in Pakistan and that Obama made misleading statements in his press conference that were later refuted by the Pakistani IT guy's video. What happened? In the operation to kill Osama bin Laden, we actually lost a helicopter. There were no casualties. The SEALs were prepared for that contingency, so they were able to relocate to the other Black Hawk and exfiltrate successfully before they were confronted by Pakistani military. But the loss of a Black Hawk helicopter is not something that President Obama was sharing in his first triumphant address to the American people. That was something that journalists knew about immediately and could press American national security officials on. So I, I think for governments for which there's an expectation of transparency. This real-time reporting does put new pressures on them. But for authoritarian regimes who are comfortable lying, social media often enables them to lie more efficiently and faster to more people. Putin used little green men in its Crimean invasion. Is this how authoritarian regimes will respond 
to social media and its openness in war that they will use fake proxies to give plausible deniability. In the 2014 invasion of Crimea and then eastern Ukraine by Russia, the Russians thought about how you mask military movements in the age of social media. And their result when they invaded Crimea was to take off any identifying emblems. These Russian invaders had taken the Crimean parliament building. They'd locked down major Crimean infrastructure and strategic centers before the Ukrainian military really had a handle on what was happening. At first, they thought they were dealing with a protest. They weren't sure who the protesters were. They thought it was a civil action. Only too late did they realize that they'd been invaded. How would you compare Russia's use of social media for its Crimean invasion and the recent Ukrainian one? In fact, it's a marked contrast between Russian operations in 2014, which are quite good at disguising their providence, versus the Russian invasion in February 2022, which opened with cruise missiles landing on Kyiv and other cities and 190,000 Russian soldiers marching across the border. This current operation, it appears to have been a decision taken by Vladimir Putin right before the shooting began. Certainly, there was no discussing all the Russian military assets that were in place. But when it came to the invasion itself, very few Russian government officials knew about it in advance. There was a lot of confusion among senior Russian officials. For the first week, it was Russian policy to deny that there were any troops outside of eastern Ukraine, to certainly deny that there was a Russian tank column heading toward Kiev. It was very hard for Russians to message consistently to the international community and to their own people. That's begun to straighten itself out. Today, there are patriotic brigades of Russians who are helping to police online discussions in Russia. There is a very powerful censorship law passed by the Russian parliament in which demeaning the Russian military can land you a 15-year jail sentence. There's a crackdown on many social media platforms in the country, and that has overnight transformed Russian digital culture because it is much harder to speak frankly about the war. Those small acts have stopped because the cost is just so high. And it's also noteworthy that as Russia's focus more attention on its domestic population, it still really hasn't done that much internationally. Russian policymakers understand that they have truly isolated themselves from the global community. But what matters most is stopping uh, Fifth Column from forming. In the days before the invasion of Ukraine, Biden made public pronouncements that the invasion was imminent. I suspect he did so to prevent the use of bogus reasons for an invasion. What happened? I don't see how the U.S. could have played it better. Here's a contrast. In 2016, when the U.S. had definitive proof that Russia had engaged in interference operations against the United States in the presidential election, it took months of internal deliberation for the White House to put out one small press release. You contrast that with President Biden saying, there will be an invasion. We have the proof of it. Because the U.S. had been so clear in calling out what was going to happen. When the invasion came, the international response came together much faster. 
The U.S. had prepared this environment. And then the Ukrainians themselves were so powerfully showing their bravery. These two things together compelled the international community to expel Russia much faster than most observers anticipated before the war began. The moral outrage in Ukraine dissipates with each passing day. Anger exponentially decays. How does that fit in with the social media problem? That's a wonderful question. Anger and all online content comes with a half-life. When something goes viral, most people see it in the space of just a few hours. Then it rapidly uh, diminishes after that. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has followed the same course that all online events do. I'm actually studying this with a team right now, and the average daily shares of Ukraine-related articles is down to about 5% of what it was at its peak the day after the invasion. Most global observers are still broadly sympathetic to the Ukrainian cause, but it's becoming a background noise for most people, as was inevitable. Elon Musk is buying Twitter, and he believes in free speech on the platform. How will this change censorship of violence on Twitter? I worry that Elon Musk has never thought about this issue. Elon Musk's conception of free speech comes from a largely American-centric debate between white men who are rich and feel censored when they can't express political positions. The content moderation policies that Twitter has developed didn't emerge in a vacuum. They emerged after more than a decade of Twitter dealing with terrorists using their platform, foreign intelligence agents and white supremacists using the platform. And so the decisions that they've made are very much tied to that context. Elon Musk is set to restart these debates. And unless he proceeds carefully, he'll be re-empowering many hateful forces, which could spell terrible consequences for Twitter and for broader internet discourse. When I worked at Salm Brothers in the late 1980s, I was part of the corporate finance team that covered the Soviet Union. And each week I would send a market update using a fax. I was told this was one of the few faxes in the entire country. The Soviet Union was incredibly backward in its technology, and many analysts at the time thought it was the new communication technology that led to the Soviet downfall. Now, with the Chinese, they have cutting-edge technology, but instead, it empowers the authoritarian regime. China shows definitively that technology and even the internet is not necessarily a liberalizing force. The Chinese Communist Party wanted to maintain a technological edge, the philosophy of state preemption and state control. The Chinese Great Firewall was actually built by American companies, Cisco and Sun Systems, who took what they learned corporate intranets to make an intranet for the entire country. The communication between Chinese interneted websites and websites overseas would flow through 
Chinese sensors. The Chinese have been pioneers in data collection. Sometimes they make great commercial products. TikTok's success in the West is because of how advanced Chinese engineering has gotten in collecting microdata for every user. All those tools and techniques are used for control of the Chinese population and in the suppression of any political activity. China is the textbook example of government dominance of the internet. It is very difficult to see that changing. And as time has passed, more and more countries around the world are looking to the Chinese model. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Emerson, what are you optimistic about with regard to social media? Authoritarian forces have gotten much better at using the internet. But as I look back over the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I'm encouraged by how bad the authoritarian messaging continues to be in practice, how unconvincing it is. We talked about how Russia is now exercising so much control over their domestic population. But if you actually look at the content and videos that they're spreading, they are deeply unconvincing. A few years ago, we worried about Russians running these highly sophisticated sock puppet networks overseas, pretending to be citizens and masking their identities. We know now that they can try that stuff, but they're really bad at it. Whether it's open source intelligence outlets like Bellingcat, labs that study social media manipulation, like my own, the Digital Forensic Research Lab, we are able to find, track, and disrupt a lot of this malign behavior. Thanks to Robert Emerson for joining us today. That ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's show. Our speaker next week will be Aaron Friedberg, who is a professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton. And he will discuss his new book released this week entitled Getting China Wrong. Managing the U.S.-China relationship is probably the most important issue in global international relations. So I look forward to hearing from Aaron his thoughts on how we can contain Chinese aggression. In case you missed last week's show, check it out. It was on Jewish comedy with Jeremy Dauber and on the disagreements within the American right with Matt Continetti. As a reminder, I'm looking to hire interns to work with me on the podcast. If you're interested, let me know. If you wish to listen to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or if you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcast, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.